Hey, good morning, Willow Creek Community Church. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Welcome all the campuses of our church, Chicago and North Shore, South Lake. Welcome to Wheaton and Crystal Lake and Huntley. So glad you're here with us. And, you know, in my life, and I'm sure in yours too, there are some days that are just kind of normal days, right? They're just normal, unmemorable. And there are other days, every now and then, that you have a day you go, I'll never forget that one. Like, I'll never forget the day I met the woman who would become my wife. I remember that very first meeting. I remember the day that we got married. I remember a few years later, the morning that she woke me up early and said, Steve, it's time to get ready. We better go to the hospital. I'm pretty sure I'm in labor. I remember that day. I remember the day, too, years before that, when at a church service like this one on the back row, uh, I'd sat in church my whole life. But for whatever reason on that morning, I felt God reach out and touch my heart since he was real for the first time, since he cared about me, made a decision. Nobody else knew about it, just prayed a prayer while everyone else was doing their thing. I just sat on the back row and just prayed a prayer and really uh, accepted grace for the first time, changed my whole life. I remember that day. Some days just stand out to you, don't they? And in my life, uh, just a few years ago, uh, I had a meeting with a friend, a breakfast meeting, and uh, it was one of these days I'll never forget. Now, background to this. I'd met him 10 years ago, and it was at a turn and greet, kind of like we had at church, where you get to meet people, and he and I met, and he wanted to be crystal clear with me that he was an atheist, that he was not interested in what I was selling, but that he had kids, and he'd hoped they'd get a little bit of morality, so he was coming to church for them. And uh, I told him, that's fine, and then I told him what I'd tell you. I said, you know, you're always welcome at our church. We hope that if you're going to come here, that you get something out of it, too, something practical. And I told him, I'm praying that there's a day where you sense God's love and his grace and it transforms your hearts. I'm praying for that. And uh, he said, that's fine. And, uh, and we became friends over several years. And over those years, I saw no spiritual movement whatsoever. And then there was this day I got a phone call from him. And his voice sounded just a little different. And there was an urgency to the way he spoke to me that he needed some answers and some help with something. And so I changed my schedule the next morning. We met for breakfast. And I, I asked what was driving this, and he told me that one of his coworkers, uh, someone who'd been friends for quite a while, had gotten a tough uh, medical diagnosis, uh, one that there was not much treatment and there wasn't much time left. And he described how this friend was about the same age. They had kids the same age who went to school together. And I realized as he was talking, for the first time in his life, he was dealing with his own mortality, that this could have been him. And he realized he'd always been an atheist, but he'd never asked the big questions. And, uh, you know, if you're going to, well, the core for every human being is we have to answer these questions. Is all this just a cosmic accident, right? Is the whole world in our lives just by chance? Or is there a designer, an unmade maker, God, who created all this? And if there is, what is he like? That's what he was asking And he just said, Steve, I could use some help. What do you believe? Can you just tell me the core beliefs of Christianity? And so I told him, I said, if if you need to know, here it is. First off, I believe in the Bible teaches there is a creator. You are no accident. God made all of this. He's real. And if you could choose one word to describe him, the Bible would use the word love. Not just that he's loving, but actually 1 John says that God is is love. He embodies love. He's perfect love. I said to my friend, I said, who's the person on the planet who loves you the most? And he paused for a second. He goes, my mom. And I said, you're 50 married with kids and it's still your mom. 
And he said, I'm sticking with my answer. And I said, well, I'm sure your mom loves you. I really am. The Bible says as much as your mom loves you, God loves you infinitely more. The Bible describes that love compelled God to act. And that's what love does, right? Love demands action. Love causes grown men to write poetry and sing songs. Love causes parents and grandparents to buy extravagant gifts for little kids they love. Love demands action, and the same was true for God. God was embodying love, and he had to act, and the Bible described his love led him to create. And with a word, God spoke into being light and dark, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets, that with a word, he created mountains that we stand in awe of. He created the oceans and the beaches, and sunrise and sunset. He described with a word all of nature, the woods and the birds and everything in it. And he looked at all this and he had one word that came to mind. He said, all this is good. It's good. But there was one last piece of creation the Bible describes that God wanted to make. But he did this a little different way. The last thing that he made was humanity, was us. But he didn't speak us into being with a word. The Bible describes he formed us with his own hands. And then he breathed life into us with his own breath. And the idea behind this in the Bible is that we have a special place in creation. That God has an intimacy with us, a tenderness, a care. The Bible describes that we were made in his image. And we carry his image with us. The Bible describes where everything else in the world, he said it's good. He looked at humanity and he goes, oh, oh, it's, it's very good. It's very good. Look at an image like this. How can you not say that's very good? This is an image from uh, an event at our South Barrington campus just a couple weeks ago. Little kids on a little kid roller coaster. God looks at them and goes, man, look at the joy people feel and anxiety and fear and excitement. He looked at all that and said, ah, oh, humanity. It's very good. I told my friend, the Bible describes that God's greatest treasure is people. That God loves people. And I said, it's not just that he loves all of humanity, but he's personal. God loves you. I told him, you're no accident. The Bible describes that God knit you together cell by cell in those months before you were born. That from that moment until your end, God is watching over you. That God knows the number of your days. He knows how long you'll be alive. And the Bible describes that every gift you've ever received, every blessing came from God's hand, from his hand. See, God loves you, cares about you. And he gave humanity a lot of different gifts. One of them, though, one of them was freedom. God gave humanity free will, choice. We get the power to choose. Now, something I know about all of us, we love freedom. We want freedom. We celebrate it at 4th of July, right? Freedom. But freedom also gives you the ability to choose good and bad, right and wrong. We had the power to choose. It's one of God's gifts. And history tells us far too often we as humans choose evil, bad. You can see it. Open the newspaper any day this week, any day, and you'll see evidence of humanity doing evil. You just see it right in the news. We can see it in others so easily. But here's the truth. 
Well, it's absolutely true. Evil is out there. The other true thing is, is it's in here too. I told my friend, time and time again in my life when I look back, I've chosen wrong too. I've wanted what wasn't mine. I've taken what didn't belong to me. I've spoken words that hurt people, either to their face or behind their back. Time and time again, I've made choices that have hurt people and have hurt God. And I said, the Bible has a word for this, and it's sin. It's sin. When we've done wrong, the Bible just says, that, that's sin. You're missing the mark with your life. And a lot of times in our world, we like to have a hierarchy of who's better in our world. Some are more holy or more righteous than others. But I said, truthfully, the Bible says that's not the case. The Bible says this, for all have sinned, all have sinned, and have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says every single one of us have sinned. We've all made mistakes. At this point, my friend interrupted me. He goes, Steve, Steve, I get it. But you need to know something. I'm not that bad. I said, I'm sure you're not. But I said, there's another verse in the Bible about this sin. And it says this, says, if we say we have no sin, or if we say I'm not that bad, we deceive ourselves. And what it's saying is it's very easy for us to be deceived about our own struggles, our own mistakes. And I told him a story, I gave him an analogy in my own life about how a, there was a time I was deceived as well. And here it is. When I was in high school and college, I played a lot of golf. I was pretty good. But I stepped out of college, graduated, and I immediately joined the staff here at this church, and life got very busy. And I got married, and I had kids, and that whole time I just said, I don't have time for golf. And 15 years passed without me ever playing a single round. And then there was a day my wife told me, Steve, you need a hobby. And she was right. Wives give great advice like that. So I decided I'll pick up golf again. But I knew I hadn't played in 15 years. And I knew golf is a mental game. And so if you get frustrated or discouraged, it'll just ruin it. So I said, however I do this, I've got to maintain a little optimism. So I decided I would play golf by myself because I didn't want to compare. And I wasn't going to keep score. I would just play and try to get the feel of the game back, the feel of the swing, how to play. So that's what I did. And I started playing just by myself. And after a few rounds, I discovered something. I was pretty good. It was all coming back. I felt great. And a friend at church said, hey, would you like to play golf? And I said, I think I would. He said, well, how good are you? I said, I think I'm pretty good. He goes, oh, great. I'll invite a couple other guys who are pretty good. Do you see where this is going? Yeah. Somehow, amazingly, the day I played with them, I was terrible. Every shot was bad, and every shot they hit was perfect. At the end of the round, I needed a calculator to get my score together. I was like, how did I get so bad? And here's the truth. I deceived myself. I wasn't keeping track of score, and there was no one to compare myself to. So I thought I wasn't that bad until I actually looked at the data and kept score, and then I realized, oh, I'm in trouble. The same is true with sin. I told my friend, we don't keep a scorecard on the mistakes we make. It's so easy for us to be deceived and go, I'm not that bad. But I told him, if you've ever done a moral inventory, sit down, write out the Ten Commandments, and then try to think through your life, how many times have I broken each of these? You will be amazed at how broken you are. And then I told him, I've done this. And the number of times I wrote down, how many times have I lied? Even little white lies. How many times have I deceived or spun the truth? How many times have I gossiped or been harsh or lost my temper? 
I started marking it down. I was like, man, I'm way worse than I thought. And that's what the Bible says. The Bible says we are all equal in this. We have all made serious mistakes. And that word sin, that word sin, we don't use it very often in our culture, but that's a term that would have been common 2,000 years ago. And it's a term that's an archery term, something they would have been familiar with. And sin simply means missing the mark. You shot the arrow and it didn't quite hit the mark. And if you visualize this, maybe this is the way you picture it. You go, I was so close to the bullseye, but ah, I kind of missed the mark. And when you say I'm not that bad, that's kind of what you're picturing. It's close, but eh. I told my friend, probably a more accurate picture of your life would look a little more like that. (laughs) And that's how the Bible describes it. Here we are, the beloved creation of God. And our lives, time and time again, miss the mark over and over and over again. He goes, okay, I get it. So what's the deal? What do we do with this? And I said, well, here's the difficult news I'm going to share with you. And the Bible tells it exactly it is, straight truth. It says this, for the wages of sin is death. Sounds harsh. The wages of sin is death. The idea is that God is saying, when you've missed the mark with your life, when you have marred God's creation and you've marred your own heart, when you've offended God and you've offended others, there's a price to be paid. And a perfect God can't stand sin in this world. So there's a serious cost to this. And I could see with my friend that this was sinking in and his face became more serious and severe. And he looked down for all, got quiet. And then I noticed his countenance change. He got a smile and he said, yeah, but he's God, right? So he can do anything, right? So can't he just like wave a magic wand to make it all disappear? And I said, oh, I wish he could. See, here's the thing about God. There's only one thing God can't do. God can't break his own character. He can't go against his character. And there's one more word to describe God's character in this instance, and it's justice. Justice. The Bible describes that God is perfect justice. Now, you and I have a sense of justice, don't we? We have this idea that when someone does wrong, they don't get to get away with it. That's not right. That bothers us. First time I experienced this in my life was kindergarten. In kindergarten, I remember a day early on where the teacher lined us up for the drinking fountain. And when she turned her back, a kid cut in line, can you believe it, and got a drink and he got away with it. And I thought, that's not right. That's justice. Still to this day, this happened this week. I'm in construction traffic, and we're narrowing from two lanes to one. And everyone's doing a great job getting in line, except for that one car that raced to the front. And I thought, that's not right. Am I the only one that this bothers? (laughs) That's justice. And we don't have a perfect sense of justice, but we have that sense that, that there's a way things are supposed to be. And when you don't follow that, it's wrong. Well, God's justice isn't imperfect. He is perfect justice. He embodies justice. The Bible says it like this. God is the rock. His works are perfect. And all his ways are what? Yeah. Everything he does is just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. That's how they describe God. He's perfect justice. So I told my friend, he can't just wave a wrong, wave a wand, because that'd be unjust. It'd be just wrong. He can't do that. He can't. So what does he do? And I told my friend, oh, here's the good part. 
See, God then had to come up with a solution. If he is perfect love, then he can't stand to look at his creation suffer. But if he's perfectly just, he can't just wipe it away. There has to be another solution that's both loving and just. And this is when God puts his great rescue effort into practice. This is where we celebrate this person, Jesus, because we believe as Christians that Jesus is God himself, who out of love for his creation, left heaven and came to earth, lived the perfect life, and then died a death on our behalf to justify us, to make us right. He paid the price with his death so you and I didn't have to. It's a perfect love and perfect justice rescue. It's the answer that we celebrate. Bible says it this way, that God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, when we're still broken, still doing wrong, Christ died for us. That's the great rescue plan. That's what leads Christians to weep at Good Friday, to cheer at Easter, to look at a cross and be moved with emotion. Because when we look at it, we know this is a perfect and loving God who sacrificed for us. One more verse. I shared the first part of it. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that's true, but it continues. And it says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption, through the rescue plan that came by Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? What Christ did on the cross. Yeah. What Christ did on the cross justified all of us, every person. He paid the price not just for the good people. Not just for the ones who follow. He paid the price for all of humanity for all time. Good news, right? My friend paused. And I said, what are you thinking? And he goes, he goes I get the sense that I'm way worse than I ever thought I was. I said, yeah. And he goes, and God may be more amazing than I ever considered. And I said, that's the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity says we're all equal We're all humbled. We've all done immense wrongs. And God is far more remarkable than we could ever imagine. His love is more immense. His sacrifice is complete. He is an incredible God for an incredibly broken people. That's the core of Christianity. So he goes, is there anything else to do? Is that it? And I said, well, there's one more thing. I said, remember I talked about when God created us, he gave us the gift of freedom. Well, that freedom continued to this too. Jesus paid the price for everyone in humanity, but God doesn't force their hand. He gives the choice. You can choose to receive that or reject it. And we were at a breakfast restaurant, so I said, this is a poor analogy, but I'll give you a sense of it. Imagine you and I came and bought breakfast, and when the bill showed up, we realized we didn't have wallets, neither of us. And we thought, we have no way to pay for this. And then amazingly, someone we didn't know at another table saw what we were in and chose to pay for us. That'd be incredible, right? And he goes, yeah. I said, now, you could say no. You could say, I don't want him to pay for it. I reject it. You could. And he goes, why would you? I said, exactly. But God loves you so much, he won't force humanity's hand. He gives you choice because he respects you. He loves you. It's what we do when we love. You give choice. And if you choose this, the Bible just says, real simply, says, all who call on the name of the Lord to be saved. It just means that if you pray a prayer, just you and God, a sincere, heartfelt, thoughtful prayer, the Bible says God hears that. And my friend said, well, what would the prayer look like? And, and I said, well, one of my favorite teachings of Jesus was he described the faith he wants, and he said he's looking for people with the faith like a child, a childlike faith. 
And I said many times when I think about this prayer, I think about phrases we teach our kids. I told them some of the earliest phrases I taught my kids were sorry, thank you, and please. Sorry, thank you, please. And this prayer, this sincere prayer to God, I'd love to use that as a structure. Sorry, thank you, please. God, so sorry, sincerely sorry for the things I've done wrong. God, for the ways I've hurt people, for the way I've hurt you, I'm so sorry. Thank you. God, I'm so grateful that you did everything necessary to save me. You paid the price. You paid it all and all the UIO. God, I'm so thankful for that. And now please, God, would you please hear this prayer? Would you save me? Would you forgive me? Would you be the leader of my life? Would you replace this heart in mine that's so marred by my own sin? Would you give me a heart like yours that's more loving and gentle and grace-filled? Sorry, thank you, please. And, and he sat across the table, and I kind of thought, maybe right here this is going to happen. And then he goes, really appreciate the advice, and I got a lot to think about. I said, great. And we left. And uh, it was a few months later that I crossed paths with him at the hall at church, and there were a lot of people around, and he simply walked up to me and said, hey, Ed, said the prayer. And then he walked off, and I thought, okay, <laughs> I think I know what you're saying. And uh, it was fitting for who he is. And then a few months later, I got to baptize him, whole family around him. He told them the story of what God had done in him. And I've gotten to see him now for a few years, see how he's grown and changed. And God does that. Once you pray that prayer, if you'll allow him, God will change your heart and your life. He'll change how you act and how you care for people in love. He does this great transforming work in us. And so let me come back to the first question I asked you, which is this. Have you had one of these days that you remember, kind of like me, so many years ago on the back row of that church, have you had a day where you realized God was real, you acknowledged your belief in him, and you just prayed a heartfelt prayer of sorry, thank you, please, where you owned up that you'd done wrong, where you said thank you for what God has already done, and where you received this free gift. Have you had a day like that that you can look back on where you got this right? I hope you have. If you haven't, I hope you'll start the search for this, or maybe, maybe today's that day. Maybe today, just where you're at, nobody's looking around. You're just going to take a moment before this service is done and just say, quick prayer, God. Just walk through, sorry, thank you, please. Bible describes that once you've done that, once you've received grace, that God does this work and continues to change you and transform you, and God hears your prayer. Now, the core Christianity, once you've made those decisions, there are two, then, actions we take. There are two practices. One of them is a practice you'll do just once, called baptism. And one of them is a practice we do regularly, called communion. And communion, the core of it, 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 it's something you do regularly. Jesus was the one who created this. And he said, you're going to take part in a piece of bread and a cup of grape juice or wine, regularly. And he said, these represent something. They have meaning. And he said, the bread is going to represent the fact that my body will be broken for you. He was talking about his death. And the wine or the grape juice, he said, it represents that my blood will be shed for you. And then he had a really interesting phrase. He said, I want you to do this regularly to remember me. I'm sure those first followers of Jesus were in shock. Like, how could we not remember? But the truth is, we can easily be deceived and kind of forget the importance of this. It's easy to take part in this and be a little haphazard. Just think, what's the big deal? And always when you remember how great your sin is and how immense the love and sacrifice of Christ was, 
it helps you recenter on this. And so I'd invite our volunteers forward. We're actually gonna receive communion today. If you're a Christian, if you've said that prayer and received grace, whether this is your church home or not, we invite you to partake in this. What'll happen is we'll pass trays, bread in the middle, and then cups of grape juice around it. Just take a piece of bread and a cup and hold on to it. We're gonna wait for every person in the room to be distributed to. And then together, uh, we'll eat the bread and then drink the cup and remember the sacrifice of Christ. And from when you first receive it until everyone's served, this is really just time for you. It's time for God. You may want to pray a prayer just to confess sin. Go, God, there's wrong in my life. Uh, You may want to say prayers of thanks. Or maybe this is the day where you pray that prayer. Sorry, thank you, please. And you just go, this is my day. June 2019, I want to get this right. So while you distribute this and hold on to this and have time with God, our musicians and vocalists are just going to sing a song over you. And really, this is space for you. And in a moment, I'll come back up and I'll lead us through eating the bread and drinking the cup together.
So now I'd invite you to take the piece of bread. The Bible describes, Jesus said it himself, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. It's broken out of love. It's broken to justify a bunch of sinners like us so that we'd be right with God. So go ahead and eat and remember his sacrifice for you and for me. cup represents the blood shed for you, shed for me, out of love. So go ahead and drink. Would you pray with me? So Father God, as we receive communion, we are once again reminded of the immense sacrifice of Christ, that he gave himself for us. We're reminded of the verse that says, greater love has no one than when one lays down his life for a friend. God, we know that there's just no greater expression of love than this and what you did. So now, God, we say thank you. Thank you for the free gift of grace, for forgiveness. God, we are in awe of you. And we prayed this prayer of gratitude to you in the name of the one who saved us. Amen. Amen.